Welcome to Sports Lit. I am Nate Sager. And I'm Neil Acharya. Welcome to the Rich View Library Edition. Indeed. We're, we're at our, uh, this is like a, is this a neutral site home game for us? It is. It's a, it's our first, uh, first recording outside of the Toronto Reference Library. And uh, it's kind of appropriate for our guest who, who lives in the area and has made his home here for, I think, since the set, probably the early 80s, actually, probably the 80s. Yeah. Early yes, 80s. indeed. Our next guest brought baseball to life for Canadians across nearly four decades. Jerry Howarth joins us to discuss his memoir. Hello, friends. Stories from my life and Blue Jays baseball recently published by ECW Press. Now, when thinking of Jerry Howarth and his role as the, I guess, link between the Blue Jays and their fans for generations, there are two memory burn moments I wish to share. I think both speak to how baseball, even though it's a corporate product, like everything else in our lives, retains some of that intimacy, you know, that deep connection between the fans and the players. For, for me, as someone in a world where solitude is precious, but loneliness can be a constant, you know, Following the Blue Jays over the radio offers a bit of sanctuary. And even though we have such a plethora of information about the sport and so many entry points for following it, radio when done well is still the best, most visual medium for experiencing the game if you can't be there. Now, I guess uh, calling baseball, of course, is a craft because there's so much time to fill that it always requires you have to share so much about yourself. What was always impressive about Jerry was the stories. Like he, he always had like so many anecdotes that just kept a broadcast moving. He really let the work stand for itself. But he would have been such a great broadcaster and able to obtain all that without his the humanity that he possesses. And I always think of the time when it really slipped through. Now, as, in terms of I guess exposition, I guess it might be projecting. I I guess I should explain that I'm always of the opinion that. The connection between the Blue Jays and their fan base is probably the most intense for that the people who were sort of born in the late 1970s, the generation that's sort of now hitting their 40s. Uh, in some ways, I think their social development kind of moved in time with the Blue Jays' path. They didn't have to be around for all the you know ugly you know expansion years. They were sort of gaining a sporting consciousness just as the Jays became like a, a bona fide contender in the mid 1980s. So like. And the, you know, the blow jays years, as people called them, right? <laughs> so they got those early lessons in the idea that baseball's not about success always, but how long you can put off failure, push past it, and then learn from it. A theme that, you know, Jerry touches upon in this memoir, by the way. So learning about that early in life in a way that maybe didn't expose them to personal risk was a valuable life lesson. And it's win-win. It made those World Series victories in 1992 and 93 all the more sweeter. You know, we, they, we, I guess we could say, the royal we, <laughs> had a leg up in being the battle-hardened old soul over their younger siblings. And baseball is our one old soul kind of game. And after that, while well, the team sort of drifted through instability and ownership changes, that generation was navigating their own uncertainty of early adulthood, you know, putting away childish things. But it always had baseball within reach. And I guess the further to set this up, there was always... The uh, profile that Jerry Howarth projected it as broadcasting, you know, the sunny, upbeat, California cool, super positive type guy, the type of person whom introverts can often resent, but sort of need because they show how not to let your bad mood spread onto other people. You know, the Mr. Peanut Butter to, to one's Bojack Horseman. So that brings us to those two memory burn moments, neither of which actually came during a Jays game. They were about much deeper losses where I think a bit of Jerry slipped through and let me know I could let myself slip through. 
And it was just a like, you know, this little hitch, this little quiver in his voice that caused a just a pinhole leak and a became a gusher in this Hoover Dam of emotions that one stores up when a baseball team is their first and truest and most enduring, you know, sports love. I'll take them in reverse order. One was about, I guess, 10 years ago this summer when uh, the, the late, great Roy Halladay, the, the Hall of Fame pitcher, was in his last season with the Jays, and there was the constant narrative, were they going to resign him? Were they going to trade him? Was he just going to walk, for, leave for nothing, nothing in return as a free agent? You know, the writing was on the wall that he was probably going to go for a chance at a World Series ring somewhere else. And as much as one could understand the whole, this is the business we have chosen of it, it hurt. You know, because seeing Roy Halladay pitch was to see a master class every fifth day. It gave the Blue Jays some credibility that at the time they couldn't get over a 162-game season or in the playoffs. It made them sort of relevant as the only Canadian franchise in a U.S. baseball industry. Now, I want to say, no way of verifying this, it might have been the weekend that the Blue Jays players' life partners hold the Lady Jays food drive. So it was before a Saturday afternoon game, and, and Jerry was interviewing Brandy Halliday, the great pitcher's wife, and there's always those uncomfortable, I have to ask questions. And when Jerry asked the Brandy Halliday, the I have to ask question about leaving Toronto came up, I remember Jerry's voice broke a little. And then Brandy Halliday's voice broke too, in a way that sort of tipped me off to the fact that, you know, she and Roy would be moving on to another team. And trust me, it was just like a chain reaction of crying. <laughs> yeah. And the other time I do remember the exact date, it was April 8th, 2005, you and I, Neil, we had tickets for the Blue Jays home opener against the Boston Red Sox. And I was in transit on my way to Toronto to meet up with you. And Jerry was on the car radio talking about the game, the season, all that, you know, April op optimism that usually kind of peters out sometimes <laughs> around Mother's Day. And just a few days earlier on opening day in Tampa Bay, Tom Cheek, Jerry's longtime partner, Tom Cheek, who was in the terminal stage of brain cancer, had called one last inning with Jerry and Warren Sockew, a memory Jerry shares in the book. At that time, I guess I was still stuck in denial stage, only really accepting that Tom's rich baritone would not be filling the room on a hot summer afternoon, but sort of not grasping that, you know, his physical energy would soon be returning to the earth. And the host asked, you know, hey, how's Tom doing? And while answering, Jerry's voice broke just slightly, you know, yeah. in a way that confirmed the worst fears about Tom Sheik. And I just recall having to pull the car off the road and to have a good cry. I guess that's how deep the connection goes to Jerry and, and to Tom. You know, I mean, Jerry came to, of course, Southern Ontario in 1982 to, as one of the Blue Jays broadcasters, sort of right as they started to get some hair on their chest down at old exhibition stadium kind you know the way the current team might do later this year or next year right as the blue jays kind of leapfrogged over the toronto argonauts as toronto's summer team bumped the leafs over out of number one overall for a time and they became in a way that you really can't explain to anyone who wasn't there they, they became this huge focus right at a time when mass media was exploding but we didn't have as many things to distract us so I hope I haven't fanboyed out too embarrassingly, but for, like I say, 30-some years, Jerry's voice was a source of comfort for me, and having this book reminded me of that. So we're grateful that he's, you know, expanded and elaborated on his baseball life in book form, and he's joining us today. There's no crying in baseball. 
<laughs> yes, you don't think people can't see me right now. <laughs> yes, Nate. Now that you mentioned, I remember the, uh, scoring those tickets for us uh, all those years ago. It was actually the Red Sox' first game um, since snapping their '86 year World Series drought, and they had that. They played that in Toronto. Uh, and at some point during that evening, I remember you mentioning the impact of Jerry's words and, and what, you know, the impact it had on you. Um, fans across all sports will tell tales of listening to their favorite play-by-play commentator. And depending on the era, they might have been snuggled up to their transistor radio or sitting in front of the TV on Saturday night. It's the romance of sport. Things have changed, though. In current times, it's gotten a little dicey for commentators. Social media can often be ruthless on the individual that calls the games we watch. And let us not forget, prior to the emergence of Twitter and Facebook, print media print media was also beginning to critique the work of the voice of whatever sport it may be. One thing for certain is that Jerry's call, his voice, has always been universally heralded and oftentimes imitated. Of uh, those that listen to the fan might remember Don Landry uh, like to like to imitate Jerry, but I digress. It should be heralded for a generation of Blue Jays fans who tuned into games on the radio. The only voices they knew were those of Tom Cheek and Jerry Howarth, who called games together from 1982 to 2004, when, as you mentioned, Tom Cheek was diagnosed with brain cancer. Simply, we were spoiled with these two. So it's no wonder so many had a personal connection. And as you had on that day 14 years ago, a lot of times people had a, you know, they were moved. The sentiment culminated with a the sentiment culminated with surprise and a tinge of sadness across the country when Jerry announced his retirement 13 months ago. You mentioned the richness of Cheek's voice. Of course, touch them all. Joe lives in infamy. Jerry's voice, on the other hand, to me, conveyed a deep sensibility. His call was consistent and fair, and it was wrapped in a, in a unique, humble tone. That modesty is, evident, is also evident in his book, aptly titled Hello Friends, Stories from My Life in Blue Jays Baseball, which was released earlier this month. In many ways, it reminds me of Bobby Orr's autobiography released in 2013 titled Orr, My Story. I'm sure if you put the two of them in a room over a coffee, there would nary be a negative word about anyone spoken. They seem, to, they seem to see the best in people, and they have a strong moral compass. So with that said, coming up, Jerry Howarth to discuss Hello Friends, Stories from My Life and, base, and Blue Jays Baseball from ECW Press. Welcome back to Sports Lit, and welcome to the show, Mr. Jerry Howarth. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. And no more Mr. Howards. It's Jerry. <laughs> Thank you. I was, I was debating that the whole way here. I don't want to get in trouble. No, I tell my friends it's your highness, but for you two, it's Jerry. <laughs> okay. I'm going to get right into the questions. Um, and how about a tough one right off the bat? It's not that tough. No. Um, when you revisit your life experience in, in the writing process, do you come away at the end with a different understanding of yourself? No. In fact, one of the reasons why I did not want a ghostwriter, I wanted this to come out from my heart. And so when I look back at my life and I'm able to freely uh, have it flow from who I was then and growing up in California, University of Santa Clara, all the people who were benchmarks in my life, no, that was just a real easy way to just express myself with the written word, and I was very happy with it. And I, I, the one chapter I re that really stuck with me, Jerry, was uh, the 
chapter two, I think it was developing an interior life. Like I actually went back and reread that a couple of times. What would you hope readers take from that chapter, both about you and maybe about advice they could apply in their own lives? Well, Father Shanks, a Jesuit priest there at Santa Clara University, he, next to my father, was the most influential person in my life. And over the four years there, and then later as we developed our friendship beyond that, it was more, Jerry, how many of those four burners on that stove do you have going? And initially it was one. And he got me to then realize I could do a lot more if I just pushed myself. And uh, he was my motivator. The other part of it was I grew up in a family where there was a lot of fighting and alcohol and a divorce when I was uh, graduating from high school. He helped me get through that too. So when you go to uh, get your education, I always told kids when I coach high school basketball for all those years, what I want to do is have you play basketball, but I want you to go further into your education beyond high school as much as you can. Because it's not so much the degree you end up with, it's really the interior development. That's what I really got out of Santa Clara University. The economics was there on the outside, but I really learned who I was to be able to deal and cope with life as it came to me one day at a time. And how much, uh, I guess nowadays, emotional intelligence is kind of the catchphrase. Was that a case of where you had you had mentors who were early adopters and, and emphasizing how important that quality is? Well, it's interesting you say that, Nate, because for Father Shanks, for all of us, it was quiet time, reflection, meditation. And even if it was just 10 or 15 minutes, it was more, don't just speed through life without thinking about who you are, what you want to do with your life, and of course, the spiritual life as well, Santa Clara being a Jesuit school. But I think when I look back, my most valuable times were just pausing and thinking and reflecting. And all that helped me to then grow. I, Father Shanks told all of us, the only way to grow is to reflect. And when you do that, now you can control your emotions and you're someone who can then be a light for other people as well because it's not about you, it's about being other directed. You, you, um, this might uh, be similar to my first question, but you went with ECW Press on this. Um, was that because of a certain reason? I'm, a sh I'm sure the major houses, Penguin, et cetera, HarperCollins probably wanted to do a book with you as well. Was there a reason for ECW? Well, what I liked about them was that they were family. And uh, Michael Holmes, I met Michael Holmes, and uh, Jack David was the one who founded ECW back in 1974. And I turned my manuscript over to them on Friday, knowing that they published 50 books a year and that they were very good people. It was a small business uh, run by a number of us, just people that really had kind of everybody else's interests at stake, not so much them and their profit line and uh, whatever. And so after I turned over the manuscript to Michael, on Monday he called me and said, Jerry, come on in and sign the contract. That was about a year ago. And when you get to family like that, and that's really what my career was all about too with the Blue Jays, family. And being part of other people's families as well as they listen to the broadcast. But ECW had that component with me and I'm really happy I went with them because they're very good at what they do, but they put me number one too. And whenever that happens, you're very happy and gracious. So the, I guess I should, I should backtrack, um, the idea for the book that initially was your idea or were you approached to, to do it? Well, five years ago, uh, a publisher out in British Columbia asked me if I was interested in writing a book. And I said, no, but thanks anyway, I appreciate it. And then the next year, Howard Berger, a good friend of mine here said, how about if I join you and I'll ghost write a book with you and you provide the input? And I said, no, Howard, thank you very much. Uh, and at that particular point, I was not interested really in writing a book. 
Then three years ago on the field during the 2015 season, my real good friend Buck Martinez approached me. He had already written his third book, and he said, Jerry, you need to write a book. Just tell everybody about your experiences and your stories. And he really got me to think about that. So that's when I started to write 50,000 words after the 15 season. And it was really about me and then my first few years here in Toronto. And I thought, okay, that's pretty good. Then after the 2016 season, I wrote 60,000 words to get to 110,000. And then I said, okay, that's great. But now let's edit it. Because I've always enjoyed editing as much as uh, writing, uh, broadcasting as well as doing my homework, whatever it happens to be. And then when I finally, with a little bit of help, too, from a couple of friends of mine, edited it down to 102,000 words that were Jerry's, that's when I turned it over to ECW Press. So I enjoyed everything. It's kind of like my broadcast, too. I enjoyed the preparation as much as I did calling the games. Now, that is interesting what you say about how, what a long... I didn't under, realize it was such a, uh, a process over a number of years. I just assumed, okay, he just sat down and did this in, like, one shot after, <laughs> no. after retiring, but... How much did going through that process help with the transition into retirement? Like how and how important is it to write write after you sort of leave an environment and you're moving on to a new life phase? Well, the first two years, Nate, were I was actually broadcasting, and so I wanted to write. And then the, after I finished my 2017 season and retired, that's when I went over everything and, and edited it. And two of my favorite words are no regrets. So I thought, okay, if I'm going to write, and I tell my friends my one-and-done book, I wanted it to be turned over to a publisher with basically everything finished. Oh, they might dot an I and cross a T, but I wanted to do that for them regarding editing and taking out 8,000 words that were repetitive or meaningless. I wanted to make sure I had all the names spelled, too. And uh, when I finally got to the point where it was a finished product, then I was very happy with it. And if it had taken four or five years, I still wanted to have something that was refined and finished so that you wouldn't turn in a, a, a book that later people would say, well, it was a good book, but it had too many errors in it, too many spelling mistakes, the grammar wasn't there. No, I didn't want any of that. So three years actually was pretty short. I remember uh, Bruce Springsteen's book came out a couple of years ago, and he took seven years to write it. And the reason why is he's also working, and he was in a band and performing. Well, same thing for me doing my broadcasting. Speaking of broadcasting, I'm going to ask you, taking from the book, how did a woman named Ginny Redfield have an impact on the way you called a game on the radio? She had everything to do with my career early on. And, Neil, when I think about her, I still smile. I'm in AAA Tacoma. We go to Phoenix, and I hear the organ music, and I go over, and I meet the gentleman standing there next to the organist. And he said, hi, my name is John Redfield. This is my wife, Jenny. She plays here between innings and has for years, and she's blind. I met Jenny, and she was just such a wonderful lady. And I said, why don't you come over and sit with me during the innings? And she did for the next four years. I broadcast those games for her. I was her eyes, and I thoroughly enjoyed being part of that. And to give you a couple of examples, the right-hander into his motion to face the left-handed hitter. There's a ball blooped into right field, shallow, coming in the right fielder. There's a ground ball up the middle, fielded by the second baseman with a backhanded stab, throw to first, the inning is over. All that was for her. And I told her later, I said, Jenny, my career behind the microphone will be for you. Go ahead, Nate. 
Yeah, actually, we actually had, well, you mentioned Ginny, and, and every, but uh, there was a Blue Jays pitcher who gave you some valuable tips, and we were hoping you could read a section here we have flagged. It's about how Jimmy Key gave you some very valuable advice. If you sort of see the portion there that we've got the border going down and flips oh. onto page 104. Okay. Just after he moved to the starting rotation in 1985, Jimmy shared something with me that made me a much better broadcaster. The day before his start, a pitcher would chart that day's game live directly off the clubhouse TV. They would write down every pitch for the pitching coach and that day's starter to later review. One day, as I was walking by the clubhouse, Jimmy got my attention in his very soft-spoken and honest way. Jerry, are you guessing up there in the radio booth on the pitch's throne? I had the radio on listening to you as I was watching the television. You missed a number of pitches and what they were. Why don't you call the pitches off the TV monitor like we do? Those few words turned my career completely around. I told Jimmy I was guessing, whether it was a curve or slider or something else, watching with my naked eye from upstairs. When I went to our booth at Exhibition Stadium, I looked for a TV monitor. Sure enough, there was a small one anchored up on the wall off to our right. It had been attached there since 1977. Neither Tom nor Early ever used it. That day, I asked our engineer to please take it off the wall. I put it in front of me, just off to my left. I started to practice taking pitches off the center field camera to see what that was like. My one fear, of course, was to call the pitch off the monitor and then lose sight of the ball when it was put into play. Not good for a play-by-play -play announcer. This was all new for me as I was getting more comfortable, but I still wasn't doing it full-time. Then the Blue Jays went into Baltimore to play the Orioles. Their radio announcer, John Miller, was a good one. I had known for years John was in the early stages of taking a name, making a name for himself on TV as the voice of Sunday Night Baseball with Hall of Fame second baseman Joe Morgan. Miller won the Ford Frick Award in 2010. After I called my third and fourth innings and Tom took over for the next two, I purposely leaned back in my chair and saw Miller at the microphone two booths to my left. He was calling every pitch off the monitor. Right then and there, I said to myself, if John Miller can do that, then so can I. I began calling every pitch off the monitor, and I quickly found that it was fairly easy to move my eyes from the TV to the field when the ball was put in play. On those rare occasions when I did not immediately pick up the ball, player movement would tell me where the ball was. The quality of the broadcast was so much better, and it took my play-by-play -play to another level. The body language of the hitter, the catcher, and the umpire told its own unique story with each pitch. It proved so essential to making the most accurate calls without guessing. I have Jimmy Key to thank for that. <laughs> wow, yeah. Uh, uh, one of the many revelations in this book that probably a lot of us didn't know about. One of the things I didn't know about, and I'm sure many of our listeners probably did know, is I didn't know you <coughs> called games on TV in 2001. So how, how did you approach that coming from radio and obviously going back to radio or probably doing it at the same time? Well, that year I was asked by Scott Moore to broadcast 30 games with Rob Falls. The only difference being that Rob was the play-by-play -play announcer and I was the analyst. So that was a little bit of an uncomfortable situation regarding an analyst should be a former player, not somebody who's a play-by-play -play announcer. However, it allowed me over those 30 games that I worked with Rob to call the game, 
stick to the game, talk about what was happening on the field, share my stories as well, and be in a position where I began to meet so many people in the television fraternity. We would go on the road and I would call games. I got to know the TV directors, the producers, the cameramen, and later, later they became my lifetime friends. But it was also a situation where those were the only 30 games at Sportsnet broadcast, so I was comfortable with that. The very next year, Scott called me and he said, Jerry, we're going to jump from 30 games to 120, and we're going to have John Cerruti come in and be the analyst with Rob. And I said, Scott, that is the right decision. And looking back, Neil and Nate, I'm so glad that that happened where I was not the play-by-play announcer, because that would have meant my radio career would have been over, I would have been happy in the television booth, but not necessarily wearing coats and ties in August and September, <laughs> you know, in, uh, in the summers of baseball. I was very happy to have a glimpse of television. It taught me a lot, but I went right back to radio, and that's where I belonged. Is it? I know you were, you were the color guy, but is it different? Is the call, obviously it's different because the viewer is watching. They can see, and in radio you have to describe. Um, what do you see as the biggest difference? Well, it's altogether different. And one of the things I was blessed with in my career, my antenna would go up and I would begin to understand where I was and the certain elements that were needed at that particular moment. So to specifically answer your question, on television, it wasn't nearly as verbal. On radio, you have to describe what's happening to Ginny Ridfield and so many <laughs> others. You have to describe that. You have to use a few more words. And yet, I always felt pausing and letting the crowd come in, the public address announcers' voices around the league was most important. But on television, I would look at the screen and compliment with a caption what people were seeing on television. What did that lead to? Later, the cameramen around the league doing our broadcast would come up to me and say, Jerry, I really appreciate you because when I went to a certain shot, you were right there with me. And then when I went from the field to the dugout to show the manager, you in one sentence went from the field to, and there's manager Cito Gaston talking about uh, something with his pitching coach right there. The cameraman really appreciated that. And when I knew then what I was doing for them was also for the audience, that was a great television experience that it wasn't about me. It was complimenting what I saw on the television. Now, what, what I really like about the book is how just the narrative flows like through really your relationships with 36 years of Blue Jays players. But the sports industry changed so much over those three and a half decades. I think I looked it up in 1982. The player with the highest average annual value on his contract was Dave Winfield at $2.5 million, and there, now there's whatever Mike Trout signed for him. But, but did the relationships and the interactions with the players really change all that much? No, not really. In fact, somebody asked me the other day, in the clubhouses, was there turmoil? Was there uh, discontent about you make this and I only make that? That was never an issue. I thought, too, that it might be, but it never was a factor. I think what young players did was they were happy that the veterans got the money because they saw that as an avenue for them to get money later on as their career went on. So everything was pretty regimented regarding free agency after six years and so on and so forth. But the money was not a factor. The other thing I tell people when they see Mike Trout signing for over $400 million and Bryce Harper for $330 million, every year, 30 owners divide among themselves $10 billion. That's the industry every year. So don't feel sorry for the owners and look at the players. The money is there and it's a factor. But it's not an overwhelming factor because the owners are making the money to pay that. 
You came to the Blue Jays in 1982, and I believe uh, part of the 1981 season, correct? You were also 20 games. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, The team obviously uh, was, you know, born in 1977. Um, We all know about Doug Alt. I want to know, by the time you got there in 1982, how much of a sell was there for the team? Was Toronto dialed into the Blue Jays are our team, they're selling out the place, or was there a a sell? Well, really, if you want the uh, exact answer to that, Neil, it was Bobby Cox. When Bobby came in 82, having managed in Atlanta for four years, his first go-around, when he came, and he's in the Hall of Fame now for a reason, he put the Blue Jays on the map with the ability to run the team. His general manager is also in the Hall of Fame, Pat Gillick. So up to that particular point, the Blue Jays were an expansion team. Their first three years, they lost well over 100 games. Then they started to move toward a plateau where they were at least trying to approach the 500 mark. And then when you put two Hall of Famers together, Pat Gillick and Bobby Cox, and I happened to come right there at the best time, 1982, with Tom Cheek, that's when the foundation started to be built toward what would be 11 straight years of playing better than 500 ball going to the, uh, I believe, 1983 season, and after that, two World Series championships. It all starts, really, the competition is not down on the field. It's among the owners and among the players, uh, general managers, and uh, that's what the general manager here did with Bobby Cox to make it all happen. Outside of the, the, the team starting to be good, was there, was there a, a sell? Did you feel like you ever had to sell the team on the radio? No, not at all. Um, the fans come for a reason. They want to see baseball, have a hot dog, watch the game. Now, as the team gets better, more people come out because there's no substitute for winning. And in 1985, when they drew so well, they won 99 games. And, of course, for three straight years, back in, I believe, 91, 2, and 3, they ended up drawing 50,000 a game. 4 million fans a year uh, for three straight years. So that was a product of, come on, let's go out, let's see this team win. And that's why this year, in 2019, I tell fans, don't look at the one-loss record. Enjoy the development of Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Bo Bichette, Danny Jansen, Ryan Barucki. Those are the kids that will make it happen, hopefully, in two or three years. The, the Jays seem to do a lot of great things off the field to bring, I guess, Canada's focus onto them and make them Canada's team, like the Caravans and... Of course, there's a, a great uh, a great song that uh, we we all we all love. They play in the seventh inning stretch. So this is the point in the podcast where we like to give our guest a gift. So here is your gift, Mr. Howarth. Jerry. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look at that! Uh, now I don't know if you have a record player at home. I still do, believe it or there not. There you go. There's a 45 vinyl. You probably already have this because in the book there's a picture of your office and there's a lot of Blue Jay stuff in there. But do you have? No. Yes. I don't. <laughs> and I, I actually actually have one of these centerpieces yeah. for this 45 too. So thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now that is a great keepsake. <laughs> well. Um, you got to thank we got to thank the good people at eBay too, and I've got to shout out the record store near my house for allowing me to to clean that. It was a it was a yeah it wasn't in the greatest condition when I got it, but I'm glad you like it. Um, so I will move on. I will thank move you. On. That became Canada's new seventh inning stretch when I got here. There you go. Sorry, we should talk about the song. Okay, Blue Jays. Any any anything you want to share on on that song? Well, no. When I first moved up here and was ready for my first seventh inning stretch and heard that, I thought okay. And I don't think they played Take Me Out to the Ball Game. Mm. And then years later, they mm-hmm. put both on there. So it was kind of nice that the original stood the test of time, and then so did the seventh inning traditional Take Me Out to the Ball Game stretch. 
Okay, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna digress now and go into my next question. Um, how would you describe working with Tom Cheek? Um, and like, how did you decide how the workload was broken up from the outset? I know you alternated innings. Um, how did that evolve and change over so many decades working together? Well, that wasn't our decision. We were both hired by Len Bramson, who brought Tom in in 1977 to work with Early Win, and then myself. Three games in 1980, 20 in 81, and then full-time in 82. And when I reached the scene, it was Len who said to me, Jerry, I'd like to have you call the third, fourth, seventh, and eighth innings. Well, that was a bonus for somebody like me because most number two broadcasters did the third, fourth, and seventh innings. And the play-by-play announcer, the lead announcer, did six innings. So I was very happy with that, and I didn't say anything. And I was real happy to call the eighth inning because it's so essential to the game itself. So Tom and I were very happy together. We were opposites, but we complimented each other on the air. Our voices were different. You always knew who was speaking. Uh, our approach was as play-by-play men, we weren't there to say, well, this should have happened, that decision should have been made. No, we weren't former players, and we respected that. And I think the fans really liked the fact that occasionally we would come into each other's innings to add a story or maybe a thought or to refine something that was said. And it was a great two-man booth, and I always believe in radio you should have a two-man booth. So Tom was a a real pleasure. He was the original announcer. For me, he was a sophisticated Blue Jays fan. He loved seeing the team play. When they were winning, his voice showed that. When they were losing, it fell an octave, and he was disappointed, just like the fans were. My approach was a little different. I would played baseball all year round in California, including a couple of games in college. And for me, I highlighted the game. People knew I was a Blue Jays broadcaster, but when there were great plays made by the other team or a well-pitched game by another pitcher, then I was happy to highlight that too. Speaking of, of your time in college, you, you did pretty well in your, in your short amount of time. I, do I remember reading correctly that you, you, you hit a double or something like that? And... Well, as it turned out, I went up to, for the baseball team, the freshman team at Santa Clara. And I played in some scrimmages. There were some games. And then finally, I got an opportunity to play before the three basketball players on baseball scholarships came out. And I had one game where uh, I tripled to right center field, and I was so happy with that. And, <laughs> and I was, unfortunately, I was left standing at third. I said to my teammates later, come on, well, you got to drive me in here. And, uh, but it was a great experience. And then when the three players came out, I was a reserve. I was a utility player. I was let go, and I was okay with that. And uh, I always tell people, too, when it happens, move on. And the very next day, I moved into writing, began to cover Santa Clara sports, and that later led to broadcasting and my career here in Toronto. And playing the game obviously must have helped you, or still, you know, it helps you understand the game in a different way. Well, it did. It made me appreciate how tough the game is to play. In fact, when I was a freshman, and uh, Al Gallagher went on to play Major League Baseball with the Giants, he was the Broncos' third baseman. He came over to our field one day and began to pitch batting practice to us. And I knew right then my career was in jeopardy. Batting practice. He was humming fastballs in there in the 90s, and uh, it caught me off guard. But it was also uh, an alert where, Jerry, your time is nigh here. And uh, I was able to move on, enjoying what I did, and then looking for something else in sports. And now, as you touched on a couple of questions back, you and Tom are never overly opinionated. But there is one opinion you state strongly in the book. You rank the top five Blue Jay home runs. And you have a dissenting opinion, uh, I think, from the public consensus on what the most important Blue Jays home run is. I guess it was sort of, uh, I don't know, what was sort of the reasoning behind that? Because I have felt the same way. And 
my one good friend John Bauer the third feels the same way and we've taken heat from people for saying Roberto Alomar's homer in 92 is more important than Joe Carter's in 93 I guess what's the reasoning and and why do you think the public perception is so hard the other way against against what you stated well I think too when people hear that I say Joe Carter's home run was third in my ranking not second then they're really surprised. Well, when I look at Roberto Alomar's home run against Dennis Eckersley, that turned the 1992 American League Championship Series around. If Roberto doesn't homer in that game off Dennis, that's one Hall of Famer against another, and the Blue Jays lose that game, there might not have been a World Series. Okay, number one, a, a 1992 World Series. So for me, the Blue Jays had had that choker label. They couldn't win the big game, and fans just wanted to see them win. And when Roberto did that, which led to the Blue Jays winning that series, that took them to the World Series. So for me, that was something that really preceded Joe's home run and the second home run in history. And that, for me, goes to Game 2 in Atlanta. And the Blue Jays are trailing one game to none, and they're trailing in the ninth inning by a run. So they're looking at coming home down two games to none, and that might be a World Series that they just didn't even finish, let alone win. Uh, so what happened was in that, in that ninth inning with a runner on, Cito Gaston went to a rookie, Ed Sprague, and asked him to pinch hit. Well, as he's walking by Rance Mullinex, Rance gave him a little clue as to maybe what he might look for for the veteran on the mound, Jeff Reardon. So now you have a rookie against a veteran, and Jeff Reardon needs no introduction, a star for Montreal with the Expos. But Rance just said, don't get fooled by pitches up in the zone. You look for something thigh high. Well, the first pitch was thigh high, fastball, and Ed hit it out of the ballpark, left center field, a two-run pinch hit home run for the lead, and the Blue Jays won that game to tie the series. For me, again, putting things into perspective, if he doesn't do that and the Blue Jays lose that World Series, I don't think the Blue Jays go to the World Series the next year because Paul Molitor's not going to come, Dave Stewart's not going to come, and there'd be no Joe Carter home run. Now, having said all that, Joe Carter's home run wins the 1993 World Series, classic, only the second walk-off World Series home run ever. And then after that, I liked Jose Bautista's bat flip home run. Edwin's home run then would be fifth, the wild card winner against Baltimore in 1989. And that's why I ranked them the way I did. And the fans love the Joe Carter home run. And that's okay. I, I love my job as a Blue Jays broadcaster. And uh, I love what the fans contributed. But that's just my feelings on how I would look at those home runs. Revisiting those those great years, um, especially 92, 93, in the 92 World Series, the narrative we watched at home as 14 and 15-year-olds was, you know, this is Canada against against the rest of, against the U.S. Did did that, did you feel that? I mean, Olimar uh, was safe. He didn't, you know, the the tomahawk chop with Kelly Gruber, the upside down flag. Did, did, you, did you sense anything like that or was that just something made up? I didn't. Mm. I did not myself. Um, and I'm not sure if a lot of people did. However, having said that, and now I've lived more years in Canada than the United States, who would have thought that? <laughs> I can see how Canadians would feel this is us against them. But it was never that way for me, and I don't think for a lot of people either, nor for the ball players. It was, let's beat Atlanta. Let's try to right. get into this World Series and win it. And it, it was, and it was very nice to celebrate a first World Series ever outside the United States and to be part of it and be a Canadian as well. We became Canadian citizens in 1994. 
it was it was special, but I didn't I didn't look at it as a, a we against them situation. What was your what what happened uh, through the course of your night those nights when you know when 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 Carter catches a ball in Atlanta? What are you doing immediately after the broadcast is over? Were you guys flying back to Toronto or no? What happened was they were there was a contingency plan that if the Blue Jays win game six the world series is over right. if they win game seven the world series is over so what happened after game six the blue jays celebrate on the field tom cheek and i went down to the clubhouse we enjoyed the celebration as well that's where and my family was there too that's where in the clubhouse uh, my two sons ben and joe were there with me they were your ages they were like 16 and 14 mm. and over in the corner I see Wayne Gretzky, and I had met I had met I had met Wayne before. I had met his parents before in Brantford, Ontario, and there he is. He'd been hurt, so he was with the Los Angeles Kings, but he'd been hurt. Somebody cheap shot at him up against the boards, and uh, there he is. And I gave o- I went over, I gave him a hug. He says, "Jerry, I wanted to be here for Canada to win its first ever World Series baseball championship." He said, "I grew up playing baseball. I yeah. love playing ball. I was a shortstop, and, and then hockey. You know, I went to hockey, and really glad that I did that." So that was kind of special to be in that kind of a celebration to see that happen. Then, to further answer your question, all of us went back to the hotel the Blue Jays were staying in and celebrated and partied until about four in the morning where the players were there too, hugging Tom Henke and so many others to see the joy on their faces. Then we went to bed and quickly in the morning caught a flight back to Toronto. 1993, what happened? Same scenario, ball goes out over left field, Joe Carter touches them all, and then the broadcast ends. What happens? Well, I'm down on the field getting ready for what I think is a post-game interview with a Philly to go to Game 7. So Joe walks it off, and, and so I'm already down there. Later, Tom comes down again. My kids are in the clubhouse. My wife, Mary, the families are in there after the players all celebrated. It was just a wonderful moment. I always remember, to uh, John Olerud's dad, John. Uh, I'm standing next to him, and we're both watching the celebration. And he looks at his son. He says, Jerry, I'm just so proud of my son. And uh, I said, I am, too. He's just a wonderful person, let alone a ball player. And, and that's what John Sr. said. He's a better person than he is a player. And there he is celebrating the World Series. Great moments. And, of course, in all of that, too, I remember police escorts and all the fans lining up. And after those two World Series wins, coming back with a parade in Toronto and coming into the then Sky Dome and 50,000 people there and the Blue Jays are on stage and bringing them up one after another with a microphone. I had one, Tom had the other. and The glow, it's still here as I'm talking about it with you. Let's, uh, let's fast forward then uh, to Tony, or Tony Batista, Jose Bautista's home run, uh, the bat flip. That inning, this it was the sixth inning? Seventh. Seventh inning, was, was it 43 minutes? 53. 53 minutes. How does that play out for a commentator? Well, that's one of the most interesting innings ever in playoff history because of all that it entailed, allowing it to go from the first pitch at the top of the inning to the last pitch in the bottom half, 53 minutes. That's unheard of, a 53-minute inning. But it all started with Russ Martin throwing the ball back to the mound. Shinsu Chu's bat is extended, not intentionally, but it's extended over the batter's box. The ball hits the bat, rolls down the line. Dale Scott calls dead ball. Runner goes back to third. Then they huddle, and they overturn the call, and he scores. And now all of a sudden, the fans are going berserk, throwing things on the field, because Texas now has taken a 3-2 to two lead. Final game, game five. The winner goes on to the American League Championship Series. I'm calling it with Joe Siddle. Had the pleasure of doing that. 
And so now there's all this controversy and finally the inning ends and it's 3-2 Texas and there's just boos and a chorus of boos and you could just see the animosity building up in the Rogers Center. So we come back in the bottom of the inning and there's an old saying, there's no such thing as a routine ground ball in baseball. Neil and Nate, I can still remember it like it was yesterday. A routine ground ball to short off Cole Hamels, booted by the shortstop Elvis Andrews. Routine ground ball to first, the first baseman. Those are down to second, in the dirt, everybody's safe. A routine little top ground ball to the mound. Throw to third, right there is Adrian Beltre, his throw to Elvis at, at the bag covering, and he drops it, flat out drops it right there. Three on, nobody out. So Donaldson pops one up with the infield drawn in, the second baseman, Rugnit Odor, he goes back just in the shallow left, right field area, makes the catch, but a runner scores to tie it. And then here comes Jose. And uh, all of a sudden, it's one pitch after another, and then boom, off his bat. You could tell it was gone. Five words, yes, sir. And then with an emphasis about all that had happened, there she goes. I didn't talk for nearly a minute. Let the crowd come in. It was a wonderful moment for me, for the fans, for everybody across Canada. That's what radio's all about. Blue Jays then took a 6-3 lead with that one swing, and they win the division series. I, I think I think I need a moment. <laughs> <laughs> that was a moment. Um, how did the emergence of analytics uh, affect the way you called uh, games, or, or if at all? Uh, did, did you know when all of a sudden you're hearing words like uh, like what VORP warp was it VORP VOR VOR VORP what's the other one there's isn't there some strange we used to joke about anyway but obviously there's a lot of like you know when I was a kid you see you know RBI home run and average and then you know 15 years later there's like a thousand different ways to measure how good a player is did that ever affect how you called a game it didn't affect how I call the game, but I think it really affected how the game is played. So there is war. Very good, Nate. There is whip. There's no walks. warp, though. No. no. Okay. <laughs> whip is walks, hits, innings, pitch. So how many runners do you have on per inning? There are a lot of different things analytically that I thought was part of the evolution of the game. But for me, it wasn't part of the radio broadcast for this very reason. You two can't even remember what you're talking about here regarding analytics and terms and what effect it might have on the game. And it just wasn't right to continue to use it and to continue to de define terms when you know that the fans really wanted a radio broadcast that had to do with stories. And who's on first? Abbott and Costello, yes, who is on first? And all those wonderful things that have to do with the broadcast. So what I decided to do was I didn't introduce it really on the radio at all. I just let the pregame and postgame shows handle that. Radios, uh, for me, if they wanted to do that on radio, outside the broadcast, great. Uh, writers uh, with their stories, uh, storylines, that was great. But I think on the radio, you get into too many things that are too complicated, especially for me, like I'm old school, and the baseball fans were older. Now, the younger fans coming in in 15 and 16, and they've filled up the Rogers Center with voices that I'd never heard before in excitement. Uh, let them play on that, too, but not necessarily for a radio broadcast. Yeah, I, I sometimes joke that uh, my uh, that I, I just want to live long enough to see weighted on base average replace batting average on the scoreboard. See, there think, you go. Yeah, like that. That's that's my comp. That's my com that's my compromise. Now, one thing I did want to ask, obviously, over the course of your career, like you were 
pretty much every team i think moved into a new ballpark except i think the boston red sox and the chicago cubs now it's sometimes dangerous thinking to have likes and dislikes in your job because that can but what were some of your favorite places to call a game that aren't around anymore that aren't around anymore because yeah. easily the, the my favorite ballpark is Fenway Park. There's no question about that. I wasn't in Wrigley Field too many times because of you know just the lack of they're in the, they're, they're in the National League with interleague play. At least I got to go over there a couple times and I thoroughly enjoyed it. So Fenway Park was my favorite. But as far as ballparks that are not there anymore, I always liked Comiskey Park in Chicago before they replaced it with U.S. Cellular Field. Uh, I enjoyed a lot of old ballparks. Uh, I grew up watching the Giants play at Seal Stadium and later Candlestick Park. Wasn't so enjoyable in July when it was freezing and the wind was blowing there, but it was part of an old ballpark that had to do with a lot of history. I thoroughly enjoyed Memorial Stadium in Baltimore before they built beautiful Camden Yards, which uh, was another one of my favorite ballparks. I liked them all. Uh, Every ballpark told its own story. I was really happy with those. But for me, it was always the blank canvas. Let's paint this broadcast and make it the artistic rendition, the best that it can be, and then make the next broadcast better than the day before. So the ballparks were great. And where I sat, I was in a unique position. In fact, let me just sum up here that my favorite old-time ballpark outside of Fenway Park happened to be where I first broadcast my first major league game, July 4th, 1980, at Old Tiger Stadium. And every time I would go to Tiger Stadium, you would sit in the radio booth right behind home plate, right there with the, the screen, the, the net behind the screen. That's how close you were. You could hear the hitters and the umpires and the catchers talking. I love Tiger Stadium and Fenway Park. They were my two favorites. I have nightmares of Larry Herndon still. <laughs> um, uh, a couple of questions ago, you touched on the, the kind of the evolution of the Blue Jays fan base maybe how they got a little bit more vocal as time went on. Of course, I remember, you know, going to Skydome with my parents and Dave Winfield saying, you know, it sounds like these guys are sitting on their hands or something like that. That's, you know, then you fast forward to Bautista's home run, let's say, or that those two playoff runs in 2015 and 16, and you've got a much more vocal fan base. You actually, I believe, right about the point when you noticed it turn. Mm-hmm. Uh, could you describe that? Yes, in fact, 1992, it took Dave Winfield. This is where the corporate crowds were in the stands, and they were applauding in the ninth inning with two outs and two strikes on the opposition hitter. Not good. They were applauding when things were exciting, but that's natural. You do that in the game. But there wasn't, I didn't see any anticipation of helping a pitcher out, a hitter in a certain situation. And Dave Winfield had to say, Winfield wants noise. Come on, crowd. He just came up for that one year, came up from the United States. He played in uh, Minnesota and so many other different teams uh, with the Yankees for 10 years. He wanted noise. That's what, that's what the disappointing part about those corporate crowds. They were there in numbers, 50,000 a game, but they weren't really contributing to what could have been a, a greater scene. Now, all of a sudden, the July 31st trade deadline comes and Dave Price, David Price comes along, Troy Tulowitzki comes along. Team is a 500 team. And David Price first start, I'll never forget it, sunny day, the Rogers Center, the roof is rolled back, fourth inning, and all of a sudden a couple walks in a base, hit the bases are loaded with nobody out. And the crowd, a younger crowd like I had never heard before, they're on their feet and there's bedlam, like the Blue Jays had just won the World Series to give you a comparison. And David Price all of a sudden takes a deep breath, looks at the crowd, gets the next three hitters, leaves three runners on. 
the place, I've never seen it that way before. He comes off the mound, pounds his fist into his glove. The dugout comes, the players come out in front of the dugout. They take him down the steps. And from that point on, that I think it was August 3rd or August 4th day, for the next year and a half, that's the way the, the crowds were from the first inning. In fact, when pitchers would go out to warm up, they would get standing ovations. And it took that for a year and a half for me to see the crowds go from corporate to that's the way you cheer. That's the way you help your team win games. And twice the Blue Jays went to the championship series in great part because of those exciting crowds. Uh, Jerry, uh, you were um, elected into the Etobicoke Sports Hall of Fame in 2000. Your colleague Tom Cheek is, is in Cooperstown. I kind of know where your answer is going to go with this, I think. But do you ever, would, what would that mean to you if you were to ever get that nod? Well, I'm really I'm happy with what I did, and those awards don't concern me. I'm happy when somebody says, Jerry, we'd like to have you be part of the Hall of Fame. And I have to say that the nicest award I've ever received was being inducted into the Etobicoke Sports Hall of Fame, not because of being a Blue Jays broadcaster, but I coached basketball in Etobicoke for 25 years. And it was a wonderful run. I started at Islington Middle School where my kids went, coached them uh, you know, in the Etobicoke Basketball Association, then 20 years at Etobicoke Collegiate. I've always left awards for other people. Let them have the awards. I was gifted with um, a wonderful career that just one break after another, and then I applied myself. I worked hard to be the best that I could be, and that's my award, that I was able to be someone who maximized his abilities to, first of all, love, praise, and serve the Lord. Thank you, Father Shanks. When I was at Santa Clara, that's what your life is all about. And number two, to inform and entertain the crowds across Canada. And that's why I used Hello Friends when I came on for Tom, who unfortunately had that malignant brain tumor, because these were my friends. These were people who said, Jerry, you're part of our family. And that fit perfectly for me. That's my award. Well, I mean, on that note, well, we'd like to we'd like to thank you uh, for for having us. Unless, of course, Nate, do you have any other further questions for Mr. Howard? <laughs> no, for Jerry. For Jerry. Oh, yeah. Yeah. oh my God. Okay. I'm not I'm not cutting it in the booth here. Okay, am I? we're going to do this whole podcast all over again. <laughs> not. <laughs> How could I not call you, Mr. Howard, after no. what you just said? I always tell people when they say that. First of all, my dad's up there listening. He passed away in 1994. Thanks for thinking about him. But even even Nate, that's funny because when I coach basketball for 25 years people would come out and they'd say mr howarth and i would say no you call me either jerry or coach even as a coach i wanted to be known as jerry and there was one funny story in high school i'm coaching at etobicoke collegiate and a new player comes on the he's sitting on the bench and he said mr howarth he's trying to get my attention and i'm looking straight onto the court <laughs> mr howarth and finally one of his teammates said johnny He's not going to answer you until you call him Jerry. He says, Jerry? I said, yes, what do you want? <laughs> Speaking of your basketball coaching days in Etobicoke, uh, this library, Richview Library, uh, one of your most proudest moments as a basketball coach came with a winless team against Richview. Can you go into detail on that? Yes, this is a good one to finish on because for me, it's like an award. My award has been my life. I don't need any awards after that. But coaching those uh, 20 years at Etobicoke Collegiate, I started off with the junior team. And well, I started off with the Bantam team, actually, for a year or two. And then I moved to becoming the, uh, the uh, junior coach. 
And we had a couple of undefeated teams that went through league play and the playoffs and played for the Etobicoke City Championship. But when I talk about my coaching career, I always go back to a season where we were 0-19. We did not win a game. It was a season where I took 25 kids and I pared it down to 15 in the middle of October. And those 15 kids stayed with me the entire run through the middle of February. We're 0-18 and and we go into Richview Collegiate, just up the street here, and they're the number one team, they're undefeated. And we have the ball with two minutes and 54 seconds to play down by six points. That's how close we came to winning our first game, but it also reflected how much we improved. The very first game I coached that year, we're at Weston uh, High School, Weston Collegiate, and at the end of the first quarter, I looked at the scoreboard, and we were trailing 22 to four, first quarter. And then at the end, we've got the ball with 254 to play at Richview, an undefeated team. That's what I was proudest of. It's not what you coach, it's what you emphasize. And I emphasize academics first, hard practices second, improvement third, and then let's go play and let the results take care of themselves. That's one of the best teams I ever coached. And those kids, Nate, later they came back to me after years saying, Jerry, that's one of the best teams I was ever on. Yeah, what, what, what did you find now coming to Canada after growing up in the States? What did you find was unique about the bonds that are built with a high school basketball team like, in a, what was what used to always be known as a hockey country? Well, it is a hockey country, and what I really noticed right away was that opposed, as opposed to the United States where they have scholarships for college sports, they don't have any college sports up here uh, regarding uh, scholarships. So you can go on and you can play football, basketball, baseball at these colleges and universities, but there's no athletic scholarships. And when I began to think about it, I, I thought, that's actually pretty good for this reason. Number one, the kids play, they play hard, but they have fun playing too. There's nothing in it for them regarding anything more than play, have fun, and enjoy yourselves. And if you're good, you can move on to colleges and universities, but you are not playing for money. You're not playing for that scholarship. Down in the States, where that's very prominent, uh, in many ways there's a lot of benefits to it, but two parents get in the way too, and I want this for my kid, and I want that scholarship, and I selfishly want to see this happen from that coach, and I'm not seeing it. All those things. So for me, having fun coaching and playing here in Canada was, was great, and I thoroughly enjoyed that kind of background without the athletic scholarships and the money involved. We're going to close out. Um... But I want to ask you, I mean, I'm going down to the home opener today. What is the home, how is, what, what is a home opening day like now for, for Jerry Howard? So you go home, watch it on TV, do you go down to the ballpark? What do you do? Well, actually, I was at the home opener last year for batting practice. I won first game of every series. Now, because of this interview here and all the traffic down there, I said, no, you two come first. And so I won't go down for batting practice because they're probably just beginning that right now. It's just too hard to get down there and park and everything else. My basic answer is I have no regrets. I'll go watch a little bit on TV. I'll hear a little bit on radio. I'll do some other things too. My career was very enjoyable, but now it's over. And I always find ways to socialize like I did yesterday. I went down for the optional batting practice, spent two and a half hours down there with all my colleagues in the media, seeing Kevin Pillar, Justin Smoke, uh, Randall Gritchick, uh, all those players that I've known for years 
and uh, so that that's my that's what I do. We kept Jerry Howard from going down to bat- batting practice today. <laughs> oh man. Okay. Well, on that note, like I said, anything else, Jerry? You'd like to say? I'd like to hear Mr. Howard one more oh, time. Sorry, Jerry. Jerry, anything else, uh, Mr. Howard? <laughs> no, thanks for having me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Perfect.